Well, what's today? Today is December 28th, three days after Christmas. How many of you still have your trees up? Ooh, how many of you taken them down already? And lights, wow. Don't even wait till the first of the year? Boy, comes and goes that quick, doesn't it? Well, Christmas has come and gone. And we look towards next year for Christmas again. It amazes me how fast the celebration begins and how fast it ends. If we can remember the day after Thanksgiving, that was the beginning of the Christmas season. The big push started with Black Friday, as everybody knows, and then followed by Cyber Monday. The stores began to decorate. The colors begin to change. The focus changes to promoting good cheer and hot sales. The controversy starts surrounding religious liberties. And for a while, the Christmas story is tolerated and even encouraged temporarily. It's almost as if we were being allowed to express our faith with very little opposition this time of the year. I just love this time of the year when our focus becomes what's on sale, where's the best deal, how long will the sale be on, will supplies last? I love that little one. Unfortunately, this time of the year becomes a focus of many retailers, so much so that in some cases, 50% of their gross income for the year happens between Thanksgiving and, and New Year. However, for a short time, we have a glimpse of the real reason for this season. We have nativity scenes being presented on front lawns, churches, and so on. Christmas carols are being sung that never get sang any time of the year other than Christmas. Different special movies come out to kind of focus in on what Christmas is about. People are putting up trees and lights and decorations in their houses. And we start getting excited because it's a celebration time. Sometimes we're in such a big hurry we forget to take a step back and reflect on the incredible miracle that we celebrate each time of the year at this time. We forget to look upon each day as being Christmas Day. Well, I guess we'll have to wait until next year to do it all over again. Or will we? Waiting can be exciting. It can create dependence. It can broaden our faith. It can create perseverance in our lives. Waiting can also cause impatience, intolerance, anxiety, frustration. Just go to the stores, bringing things back. People want to get there, want to be in the line first, want to be waited on right now. And waiting is nothing new to any of us. There are different types of waiting and different reasons why we wait. Waiting for a table at a restaurant. How about waiting for the waiter or waitress to come and finally acknowledge that you're sitting at the table? Waiting in line to purchase something. Waiting for someone at the airport or a bus stop. Hey parents, how about waiting for your child to come home? Or waiting for a loved one to call? How about waiting for lab tests or waiting for the doctor to come in for an exam? 
How about waiting in the emergency room? We were privileged to that about a week ago. On Sunday when Shelly came to me and I'm sitting in there and we're watching something on TV and she has her shoes and socks in her hand and puts them on top and says, we got to go. And I knew exactly what she was talking about. She hadn't been feeling well that day, but I didn't know how serious she thought it was. So immediately I just was in my sweats, put on my shoes and jacket and we were out the door. We got to see the brand new emergency room at Kaiser. It's a heck of a way to be introduced to a new place, but it's beautiful. But you talk about waiting. We first walked in to the triage. You have to sign all this paperwork and check in. Then you go sit down. Then you wait for the triage nurse to come out and bring you in the little room and kind of go through some little uh, tests, you know, significant, important tests, blood you know, pressure and so forth, listen to your heartbeat. And then you go back out in the waiting room. And you wait until you're called into the room for the doctor to see you. And then you go into the room. And then you have to wait for the doctor to come in. The whole time you're waiting. We were there an hour and a half before the doctor saw us. And by that time, Shelly was saying, you know what, I I feel fine, let's go. I said, no way. We've waited this long, we're staying. (laughs) Some of the exciting things about waiting is If you remember waiting for your first child to be born, or your second, third, or fifth, or whatever it is, waiting for that child's first steps. But our lives are filled with waiting. Whatever the situation, there will be some type of wait. How about those infomercials that come on late at night? You're very familiar with these. They're selling some product for a ridiculously low-priced And just as when you're about to change the channel, the announcer comes on and shouts those magic words, but wait, right? Wait for what? I don't want to wait. But guess what? If I do wait, I will receive not one, but two for the price of one. It's worth the wait. So in that instance, waiting is beneficial. How would you like to wait for for thousands of years? For that matter, how many of us really enjoy waiting of any kind? In our text this morning, we're going to be looking at such a wait. A wait that has been established since the beginning of time back in Genesis. And in Luke, we see the final promise made and the prophecy fulfilled in that waiting. Waiting for a Messiah, the King, a Savior. We have the incarnation of the Son of God being born as the Son of Man. While the Jewish nation was looking for a majestic figure to come with his innumerable armies to overthrow the governments of their enslaved lives, we are told that the King of kings and the Lord of lords was born. He was born to a lowly couple in an obscure city, birthed in a terrible place, announced to lowly shepherds, and then lived his life in a lowly town. This is the second of four major accounts that are recorded in Luke about the early years of Christ. The first one was his birth that we've gone over the past couple weeks and we celebrated three days ago. The second is what we'll be looking at this morning. The third we find in the same chapter a little bit long or a little bit uh, further on 
about the 12-year-old Jesus teaching in the temple. And finally, in chapter, four, or chapter 3 of Luke, we see the baptism of Christ. All four of these accounts are significant because they all define and point to this Jesus as God and Savior who came into this world to redeem fallen humanity from their sin. From the virgin birth to the acknowledgement from God the Father at His baptism, we are given clear and promised evidence of God's true holy gift to us. This is the story of what happens after Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you so much for bringing us to this part in Scripture. And Lord, we know that it is written because you wanted it there. So Father, as we look upon these verses, Lord, may you open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, that your Holy Spirit, Father, would speak to each one of us. At every place of this story, Lord, there are, there are things for each one who's here. I pray, Father, that you would illumine those areas and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And read along with me. Verse 21. Now when the eight days of purification, excuse me, verse 21, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the faces of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken to him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, and the daughter of Phanal, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years old, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and praying night and day. 
And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those in Jerusalem who looked for the redemption. Redemption. So when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and grace. And God, the Spirit of God, was upon him. This morning we're going to be looking at four different parts. As I kind of went through this and kind of determined for my own sake, I could be selfish of how it made sense to me, and hopefully it'll make sense to you. First, we're going to be looking at the pronouncement. That's the name. Secondly, the presentation, which is the child. Third, the purification, which is the mother. And fourth, the proclamation, which is the Messiah. Starting in verse 21, at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. There are three ceremonies that take place. We have the circumcision, the presentation, and the purification. These are important to be fulfilled by the law. The first ceremony is that of circumcision that we just read in verse 21. This event probably took place where the family lived, and not necessarily at the temple. It occurred on the eighth day as prescribed and directed by God to Abraham in Genesis 17, and also continued in the law of Moses in Leviticus 12. And this is associated with giving the name of the child, which we look back to Luke 1.59 when they're talking about naming John the Baptist. The presentation of the firstborn son is the second ceremony. This too was a requirement of the law that every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In Exodus 13, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. From the context of the passage in Exodus, we know that during the final plague which God brought upon Egypt, if you remember, all the firstborn of Egypt were slain, both men and beast, while the firstborn of the Israelites, those who applied the blood of the Passover lamb over the door, they lived. The redemption of the firstborn was required because the firstborn were spared by God and thus belonged to Him. When an Israelite family redeemed their firstborn son, they were acknowledging that this child belongs to God. The redemptive price for the firstborn child a month or more old was set at five shekels. Apparently, the presentation of the firstborn never occurred earlier than 31 days after birth. Thus, the presentation of the child and the purification of the mother, which is the third ceremony, could be done on the same visit to the temple. That's why we have a separation. Then the third ceremony was a purification of Mary required by law after the birth of a child. Now in Leviticus chapter 12, we are told that the woman is ceremonial unclean for seven days and unable to enter the sanctuary for another 33 days. 
for a girl, the time doubles. She is clean for 14 days and unable to enter the sanctuary for 66 days. But at this time, this means that Jesus would have been approximately six weeks old at the time of his presentation in the temple. The sacrifice of two turtle doves and uh, uh, pigeons indicates that Mary and Joseph were not people of means and somewhat poor. You might read over the mention of two turtle doves without thinking about it, but Leviticus 12 tells us that when a woman came for her purification, she was to bring a lamb as an offering. But however, if she could not afford a lamb, they made a provision that she could bring two doves or two pigeons instead. That made it possible for even poor women to obey the law of purification. All of this confirms that the fact that Mary and Joseph were poor since lambs were not considered a luxury item or were considered. Our Lord was not born into an upper-class home. He was not born into a comfortable middle-class home. But He was born into a loving, godly home that would best be considered a poor home. Jesus knew poverty and hardship from the very beginning. It's the second ceremony that we're going to focus in on in Jesus' presentation at the temple, which is the most prominent here in Luke's gospel in this chapter. It's on this occasion that two saints, godly people, appeared and proclaimed that the baby himself was Jesus. God's Messiah had finally come. The name Jesus that was given was the same name the angel had given to Mary. If we remember, Zechariah was given the name John by, his, by the angel as well to name John the Baptist. This is the important part that the name Jesus, as we know, means God's salvation. And we have evidence of that at the end when Simeon looks and says, For my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. I think that the name Jesus, which Luke tells us was formally given to the Savior at the time of His, his circumcision, but it was not an uncommon name at that time. That's why it's important that as we get to the end of our chapter, the identification by Simeon and Anna is so significant. It's at this presentation that we are introduced to these two people. They proclaim the words of divine inspiration. They identify the Christ child as God's Messiah. They have been waiting as representatives of Israel for thousands of years. And even in their lives, both in their 80s, have been waiting all their life to see this. Some of us here have waited all our lives for certain things. But I hope as we go through this, you will see both of their 
persistence and perseverance in their waiting. Who is this man, Simeon? Simeon is a man that is he's something like the Old Testament man Melchizedek in that he suddenly appears out of nowhere. We are told very little about this man. We don't know what tribe he is from, although he appears to be an Israelite. We know nothing about his family, whether he was married, had any children. We are told nothing about his occupation, but it doesn't look as though he's a priest, for he was directed by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. The only things that we are told about Simeon are those things which most matter most to God in his word. Things that pertain to his faith and his character. Things that describe his relationship with God. We are told in verse 25 that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Which speak of his personal walk with God and his integrity among men. How many of us today sitting here can make that claim? He was a man of faith and hope and prayer. For he looked for the consolation of Israel. This expression which summarizes the faith of an Old Testament saint in the promise of God concerning the restoration of Israel through the coming of the Messiah. This is what he has been waiting for all his life. Finally, Simeon was a man who was filled by the Holy Spirit. It was by the Holy Spirit who had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 26. God's anointed one. Israel's Messiah. It was also the Holy Spirit that directed Simeon to the temple on that particular day that Jesus' parents brought him to be presented to the Lord. And finally, in some unspecified way, it was the Spirit of God who revealed to Simeon that this child was indeed the Messiah. No No doubt the name Jesus was one of the evidences. But there must have been further confirmation, for there was no doubt that many sons were given this name at that time. The precise means by which Simeon was enabled to recognize this six-week-old child as distinct from all the others is not revealed to us. Luke is not much interested that we know him or know how, but that he was recognized and that he was identified by a godly man chosen by God, a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Those were his credentials. Recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah, this elderly man took the child in his arms and blessed God. And after a lifetime of seeking Messiah, one can hardly imagine the joy that was Simeon's at this moment in time. How many of us have continued to pray for family members and friends to come to Christ, to finally see the light. And maybe you have been privileged to share the gospel with that family or friend. And I don't know about you, but there's an excitement when you're talking 
there's almost an indication that God is working in this situation. And when the light comes on and you see it in their eyes, there's an unbelievable excitement that happens. I, I know I've experienced it, and I'm sure many of you have. That when you finally see them understand and accept by faith, they may not understand at all, but they take that step of faith. And all of a sudden, the light comes on and their countenance changes. I, I, I just have to imagine that when Simeon took that child in his arms and looked into that little baby's eyes, that that same excitement must have just filled his whole presence. Think of it this way. A man who knew that God held him in the palm of his hand now holds God in his arms. The all-powerful God is this tiny baby, seemingly without any power at all. Simeon's words of praise express the deep joy that was his at this moment, a joy which so utterly filled and completed his life that he was ready to die. And in this little section between verses 29 and 32, it's called the Psalm of Simeon or the Song of Simeon. But this is what he writes. This is what Luke records. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. See, the salvation which Simeon saw was not seen by him alone and not to be shared by him alone. But salvation was for many, Jew and Gentile. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why God came into this world as a baby. The things to which Simeon was a witness were not hidden from other men. Others may have recognized them as the work of God, but all Jerusalem, we are told by Matthew, knew of the Messiah, which the Magi sought, but rather than rejoice, the people were troubled in Matthew 2.3. And in so far as we are told, no one from Jerusalem made the relatively easy trip to Bethlehem to see the Holy Child that was born which was testified by the star in the east and foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament. While Simeon was a devout Jew, he did not view the Messiah's coming as only for the benefit of Israel. The Messiah, as Israel's king, who would sit on the throne of his father David, was Israel's glory. But Messiah was also, as it says, light of revelation to the Gentiles. That is, Messiah came as God's salvation to all men, not just to the Jews. As we go out and we celebrated this Christmas season, sometimes we get sidetracked about the reason behind it all. And as I said in the beginning, there's controversy that's stirred up about this time of the year. Now we have additions after Christmas for different peoples, different cultures. But if you look back in time, the origination of Christmas was celebrated 
as a Christian holiday, as an acknowledgement of the incarnation of God into our humanity. I hate to think what is going to happen 20 years from now. The controversy that surrounds us in this day and age, as opposed to 20 years ago or 40 years ago, as many of you can remember, has changed drastically. And unfortunately, it'll continue. This truth about the coming Messiah was taught in the Old Testament. And Simeon's words seem to reveal his knowledge of such. For example, consider the text which Simeon was likely familiar with in Psalm 98. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 8. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Wow. Imagine the impact which the actions of affirmations of Simeon had on Mary and Joseph at that time. Mary was told, and so was Joseph, but to have a person from the outside actually acknowledge and recognize and see, that must have just been simply amazing. And Luke kind of gives us a glimpse of that when he says in verse 33, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, the child Surely there must have been times when the parents of Jesus wanted to say to those who looked at him and remarked, Oh, what a cute little child. Listen, this is no ordinary child. This is the Savior of the world. But it's quite another thing when a man who is probably a total stranger walks up and proclaims your child, the six-week-old child, as the Messiah of God. Perhaps in response to the amazed look on the faces of Mary and Joseph, Simeon went on to bless them and to direct a very specific prophecy to Mary. Up to this point, everything seems positive and encouraging. But that's only part of the Christmas story. The reality of the Christmas story is when we're going to read here in verses 34 and 35. See, there's no reason for the incarnation of Christ into this world if not for the end part of His death and resurrection. There's no reason to celebrate Christmas unless we can look forward towards Easter as we celebrate it. There's no reason to even acknowledge that this baby is in any significance unless, as this baby grows up, is identified as the Son of God. But Simeon in his blessing, said to Mary, 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from hearts may be revealed. Like I said up to this point, things were positive speaking with reference to his ruling on David's throne, sitting at the right hand of things, and bringing peace and salvation to men. But now, Simeon has to reveal the other side of the story, which is also part of the Old Testament. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 both prophesy of the rejection, the crucifixion, and the death of the Messiah. Prophecies of his substitutionary atonement. Thus, Simeon's prophecies, or prophecy views, the coming of Christ as revealing the hearts of men and dividing humanity. On account of him, some will rise and some will fall. More importantly, Simeon's words prepare Mary for the grief that she is to suffer, although she has no understanding of what that's going to be. At the time of her grief, she will see her son persecuted, rejected, beaten, and finally witness him being nailed to a cross. If you remember, she was one of the women that were there. And truly, this sword would pierce her soul. I want to draw a couple parallels that you may know about or may not even think about, but I was, as I was reading and backgrounding and so forth uh, in my previous um, title of my message, I came across some of these parallels. It just shows you the preparation and the reason why Christ was born, came into this world, to the next part. We read back in the verses in Luke that the baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes. What are swaddling clothes? If you remember, the, the um, shepherds were given specific instructions, look for a baby in swaddling clothes. Well, doing some research, these swaddling clothes were strips of cloth. And a lot of times, a lot of the men would wear these cloths underneath their overclothing. And they would use them for a couple reasons. One is to wrap children in birth. And the other was for burial purposes. Because as they're going and trekking through whatever they're going, there's not a lot of time to stop and prepare, so they would carry this type of material with them. And if we remember when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, said, unwrap him. These were the type of cloths that Jesus the baby was wrapped in. The next parallel was the manger or the feeding trough. Most times these troughs were hewn out of limestone, one piece, similar to a sepulcher. That's where he was laid when he was born. Thirdly, the lambs that were in Bethlehem were usually used for temple sacrifice. So any lamb that was born in Bethlehem usually ended up as a sacrifice in Jerusalem. And finally, 
Later on, the Magi visited the child. And they brought gifts. And those gifts were part of the burial rites. So even in the birth of Christ, we have the prophecy of the death of Christ. In just those four little parallels. So although we celebrate the life of Christmas, God's purpose was even beyond that. God sent His Son to redeem our sin. And that could only happen through a sacrifice. God's sacrifice. The sacrifice. The Lamb of God was being prepared prepared when He came into this world. From that point on, He was being prepared for His destiny. Secondly, we have Anna. Another woman in waiting. Anna is truly a remarkable woman. While we are told less about what she actually said, we are given more information about her background than Simeon's. Anna was an Israelite of the tribe of Asher, one of the ten lost tribes of Israel, which were scattered in the Assyrian captivity. She was also a prophetess, not a fortune teller, but an oracle of God. She was a very aged woman, at least 84 years old, depending on how we look at Luke's wording here. She was married for seven years before her husband died and lived the rest of her life as a widow. Now, you may not think that be so unnatural, but for a Jewish woman to live as a widow is. But day and night she was in the temple praying and fasting, but we're not sure of what she was praying and fasting for. Or are we? Like Simeon, she was looking for the coming Messiah. And I believe that Anna understood from the Old Testament that the day of the Lord was a day of divine judgment and that Messiah would come to deal with Israel's sin. Thus her prayer and fasting was evidence of her possibility of the mourning for the sins of Israel. Anna was evidently a godly woman, a woman who was very aware of Israel's sins, a woman who was looking and waiting for the coming of the Messiah as Simeon was. The details of Anna's life are not given to satisfy our curiosity, but as to clues to her character, similar to Simeon. I believe that Luke intended his readers to recognize the incredible character of this woman by considering the details he has supplied. As a young widow, the natural thing for a Jewish woman would be to be remarried. She must have had many opportunities as a member of the lost tribe of Asher. There must have been a strong incentive to marry and bear children since this tribe may have been in danger of extinction. Her greatest womanly contribution, contribution as well as her womanly fulfillment would have seemed to have been marriage and childbearing. Nevertheless, she remained single, living out her life in the temple, occupying her life daily with fasting and praying. Talk about commitment. Simeon had been divinely guided to the temple. Anna was always there. 
Thus she happened to come upon the scene of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and Simeon just in time as Simeon was identifying the child as God. She too began giving thanks to God. And more than this, she began to broadcast the good news to all those who were there. The fact that she was already known as a prophetess gave her some testimony that would have great impact. They knew her testimony. Luke had many incidents, incidents which he could have recorded for the Christmas story, yet he chose the presentation of Jesus and the proclamations of Simeon and Anna. What was his purpose in including this account in his gospel? What was the message of the text to the saints of his day? What is the message to us today? The message to us today hasn't changed. We celebrate Christmas once a year. The world allows us in many ways to express our faith. But like many, the day after Christmas, the weeks and months, we get back into our routine and look forward to the next year. The coming of the kingdom of God is the greatest hope that was given to humanity. The one great motivation, the one great occupation that these two saints had was that of waiting and looking forward. For them, the wait was over. For us, we're still waiting, aren't we? In the New Testament, waiting for Christ's coming. Unless He takes us home before then, and then we don't have to wait any longer. That is God's holy gift to each of us that know Him. God's holy gift is not just once a year, but as a Christian, it's every day. God's holy gift is not to be forgotten 364 days and remembered the 365th, but is to be lived out daily in our lives, in our convictions. As many people in the temple might have heard Simeon acknowledge that that baby was the Messiah, many of us here have heard the acknowledgement of the Messiah. As Simeon says, some will rise and some will fall. You have to examine yourself to see which category you fit. Because the Christmas story wasn't given for gifts, for sales, for holidays, for cheer, for decoration. The Christmas gift was given for a sacrifice, 
for me and for you and for those who are hearing this, my voice. May this Christmas be that time of year you make that choice in your own life that that little baby becomes your Messiah as Simeon acknowledged and so did Anna. The examples of their prayer and faithfulness and longing should be ours as well. This morning, hear the words of God's gospel, not mine. Let them speak to your heart. Let them reveal Christmas to you in the real way as God's holy gift is realized. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you this morning, God, for giving us this encouragement through these two saints of old. And Lord, as we here living in the New Testament, God, help us not celebrate just once a year, but every day, Lord. Help us live the life that you've given to us in Christ. May we be a blessing to those around us. May we be an example, a living example of your love, of your forgiveness, of your understanding, of your truth. Some people, Lord, will only see us. Never read the words in your word. Father, may we be that word to those around us. Lord, bless those who are here. We thank you, um, just Father, for them setting aside this time to celebrate and to come into this place, Lord, and to share in our celebration of your life. In Jesus' name, amen.